0: We continue our sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark, so you can grab your Bibles and open up to Mark. We're in Mark chapter 6 this morning, starting in verse 7, reading through verse 30. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to grab one from in front of you, and you can find Mark chapter 6 on page 841. It's our joy as God's people to open up God's word and to hear it read and to hear it preached. And we are called to worship while we receive the word. And so let's do that now as we hear God's word. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask of me for whatever you wish, and, it will, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice at your word this morning, and we confess we need your word. We are a people, we grow conscious of ourselves, we look inward, we turn to ourselves and we examine ourselves, but we need to be called out. We need to have our vision fixed and reoriented, and that's what your word does. And so, Father, we ask this morning as we come to your word that you would lift up our gaze, that you would lift up our eyes, that you would grab hold of our chins and and thrust us heavenward, that we might behold your glory and your beauty and your honor and your worth and your power and your might and your authority. The psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so, Father, we confess this morning absolutely everything. Every mountain, every hill, every valley, every sea, every ocean belongs to you. Even more, we confess every person, every country, every king belongs to you. And Father, we as your people, as your church, as the redeemed, we come and we, we submit ourselves to you this morning and we pray, we ask, oh, that you would have your way with us, that you would take us and that you would mold us through the preaching of the word, that you would reorient, that you would reshape us into the image, the perfect image that is Christ Jesus. Jesus. And so, Father, we pray, would you have your way with us this morning? Would you, would you give us insight into this text of Mark? <clears throat> would you reshape, would you refashion our minds according to Jesus' instructions about mission and this story about John the Baptist who was beheaded? Through this word, would we live then faithfully and fruitfully in your mission, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most basic themes in the Christian life at a, a very base level is the theme of imitation. And the theme of imitation is beautifully illustrated in the Gospel of Mark. We have these scenes, especially in the early chapters of Mark's Gospel, that Jesus draws near to his disciples and he says this, Follow me. And so for these men that Jesus calls with these beautiful and powerful words, follow me, these disciples actually need to, to be with Jesus. And As we study the Gospel of Mark, this, this following Jesus carries a literal and geographical element. Jesus and these 12 men are actually rubbing elbows constantly. Jesus and these men travel together, they eat together, they sleep together as they go about in all of these villages and towns spreading The good word of the gospel. Literally, when Jesus enters into Capernaum, who's with Jesus as he goes into the synagogue? Well, there are his disciples. When Jesus gets into the boat and they're going across the sea, who else is in the boat with Jesus? Well, his disciples. When Jesus returns to his hometown into, into Nazareth, where he is rejected and shunned, who is with him? Well, his disciples. But when Jesus calls out, when he says, follow me, Jesus is not simply giving a road map into the hands of his disciples. And while these men follow Jesus from here to there, this this imitation we're talking about, this discipleship, is not an ancient version of the amazing race, making your way around ancient Israel. Rather, there is something more to this call of Jesus. And when Jesus desires that these men leave their, their homes and their families, their vocations, their jobs, so that they might be with him, Jesus does not conceive of discipleship as a, as a social hangout, a time of getting coffee and chatting together at the nearest coffee shop. Rather, there's something more to this desire of Jesus. There's something more to this discipleship thing, this imitation thing. And so we can say this. The call of Jesus, the call of imitation, the call of discipleship, when Jesus says, follow me, can be summed up like this is to have the life and mind of Jesus imprinted upon the disciple. Or we could say it like this. It is to be placed into the mold that is Christ Jesus and to be reshaped and to be reconfigured into his glorious and perfect image. And so when Jesus says, follow me, at a very basic level, these 12 men that we meet in the Gospel of Mark are called to learn Jesus. As these men walk and talk and eat and sleep with Jesus, they're actually learning their Savior. Through this following of Jesus from Capernaum to Nazareth and everywhere in between, these men are actually learning the mind and the will of Christ. It's being imprinted upon them, and they're being refashioned into the image of Christ Jesus. And as these men learn Christ, They're learning to speak, they're learning to love, they're learning to forgive, they're learning to hope and pray all anew in the glorious kingdom of God. But Jesus' call, when he says, follow me to these men, does not stop with the issue of ethics, how we act. But this call that Jesus gives is determinative for the whole life. When Jesus called these men saying, follow me, he desired to reshape and reconfigure their whole lives, the narrative substructures of their lives. Meaning that Jesus desired to reshape and reconfigure their dreams and their ambitions and their their future plans. And we see this happening throughout the gospel of Mark. If we fast forward a bit to Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Mark records this. And Jesus began to teach them. So Jesus is teaching, and the disciples have need to learn something. And what must they learn of Jesus? Well, it's this. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And what Mark is saying, what Jesus is saying, these men must learn a new story and then learn to live by this new story. Jesus calls these men to learn him in his suffering Jesus calls these 12 men to learn him in his rejection. Jesus calls these men to learn him in his crucifixion and ultimately then in his resurrection. His life is to become their lives. His story is to become their stories. His cross is to become even their crosses. And Mark teaches us as we carefully look into his story and read these words that at the heart of the Christian faith, there is this basic element of imitation. When we take up the call of the Savior, when he draws near to our own souls and he speaks powerfully to us and he, and he beckons us saying, follow me, we are taking up the great work of spending the rest of our lives learning Jesus and then slowly and often painfully being reconfigured and reshaped into his glorious and perfect image. And so as we encounter the Gospel of Mark this morning, this is a story that meets our needs. For we are a people who desperately need to learn Christ. We are a people who need to learn Christ when we're at home with our family and our, our children. We're a people who need to learn Christ when we're at work all week with our, our, our workmates. We're a people who need to learn Christ when we're, we're playing with our friends. We, need, we are a people who need to learn Christ when we're at school with all of our classmates. And so Mark places before us chapter 6, verses 7 through 30, so that we might learn Jesus in a way that applies to all of the spheres of life. A way to learn Jesus that exerts its force in the home. When we're at school. When we're at play. When we're in our neighborhoods. And Mark in this text desires that we would learn the mission of Christ. That is that we would, we would learn to take part in spreading the world-altering, sin-forgiving, Jesus-exalting good news of the kingdom. And so this is what we want to learn this morning. We want to learn the mission of Christ. So if we want to learn the mission of Christ, Mark lays out three points for us in this text. We need to learn Jesus in three significant ways. The first way we need to learn Jesus is that we need to learn Jesus' authority. Secondly, we need to learn Jesus' methods. And lastly, we need to learn Jesus' cross. So before we jump into this three-point outline, I want to give a brief justification for why we can and why we should read verses 7 through 30 together. Why we should grab this chunk and work it together. As we look at this text before us, we have an unusual arrangement of scripture. On the one hand, we can see how this text contributes to the sermon idea, the mission of Jesus, learning Christ's mission. In verses 7 through 13, Jesus takes his disciples aside. After he takes his disciples aside, he he instructs his disciples in mission. And after he instructs his disciples, he sends his disciples out into mission, In verse 30, the end of our text also makes sense in this light. When we skim to the very last verse in our text, the disciples come back to Jesus, and what do they do? Well, they tell Jesus what happened while they're on mission, what they spoke, what they did. But on the other hand, sandwiched in the middle of this instruction and story about mission is a story about John the Baptist. And this is strange for a few different reasons. First of all, we haven't heard about John the Baptist since Mark chapter 1. And the last piece of information that we heard about John comes in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 where Mark says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So we hear about John in Mark chapter 1. But after chapter 1 verse 14, we don't hear anything about John. There's silence for four long chapters. And so we're sitting here thinking, what is Mark doing? Why is he silent about John? And, and then why does he bring John back up in Mark chapter 6? And secondly, the story about John breaks up the narrative flow about Jesus. Story after story, scene after scene, has been concentrated upon Jesus directly. What Jesus is saying, what Jesus is, is doing But when we come to the middle of chapter 6, this story is all about John. And at a surface level, we don't glean anything about Jesus or even Jesus' disciples. Rather, what we hear is a story about political intrigue, a story about distorted family relations, and a grisly and violent scene where John's head is presented on a platter, But as keen readers of Mark's gospel, we are getting used to how Mark writes and how he likes to make a point. We have read and studied many of Mark's sandwiches. We can go back to chapter 1, we read and studied the Isaiah sandwich. We can go back to chapter 3, where we read and studied the controversy sandwich. We can go back to chapter 5, where we read and studied the healing sandwich when Mark makes a sandwich, and we have a sandwich in our text, even when it seems that the ingredients of the sandwich have nothing to do with each other, Mark wants us as his readers to consume this sandwich as a whole. He wants us to read and interpret these elements together. And this is the same principle that applies to our text. We need to read Jesus' instructions about mission And what happens to John together? They interpret each other. And we cannot understand the one without the other. So we need both parts of the sandwich together. We need to eat both parts of the sandwich together if we want to be faithful and fruitful learners of Jesus as we go out on mission. So there's my justification for why we should read 7 through 30 together. And so now we can actually do the work of looking at the text. And we can start with our Our first point, looking at the the authority of Jesus and learning Jesus' authority. And this comes out in verse 7. And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So far in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been the only one authorized to spread the message of the gospel of God's kingdom, an urgent message that is to be met with faith. And with repentance. And Jesus is authorized to do this work of spreading this this gospel message because of who he is. Because of his identity. Who is this Jesus that preaches? Well, if we go back to Mark chapter 1, we learn the identity of this Jesus. He is the spirit-filled, beloved son of God. But here in chapter 6, the spirit filled, beloved Son of God expands his ministry, and he does this expansion by authorizing 12 men to spread the very message that he preached and to do the very signs that he did in and around Galilee. But when we do a character assessment of these 12 men, this fledgling gospel mission looks doomed from the start. There are a few reasons for this. First of all, none of these men were well trained. None of these men had been sent off to the local university or seminary. James and John, Simon and Andrew, these two sets of brothers, they were just fishermen, untrained men. If you go to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 13, we hear this about these men. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. There's nothing special about these men. They did not have special training. Second, some of Jesus' disciples were a walking scandal. Just remember Levi, the former tax collector. Jesus sends this man out to represent him on mission. A man that no one would want to have fellowship with. A man that Jews would not have wanted to take in their house and share a meal with. And third, we have learned about the fortitude and the bravery of these men. And they don't have much of either. Mark's portrait of these men is brutally honest as we move throughout the gospel. Jesus' words still ring in our ears from the sea. He says this, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And even though Mark has shown us their weaknesses and poked holes in all of their armor, we find this stunning report about their ministry. Look at verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Go down to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. How can this be? These men were uneducated. They were cowardly. Some were marked with questionable character. Yet we see great things done by their hands demons cast out, people anointed with oil and healed. How can this happen? Well, the answer to their success in ministry cannot be found in these men or who they were or who they weren't. Rather, the answer lies in the one who sent them on mission. The answer lies in Jesus. The answer is in verse 7. He gave them authority. What made the disciples' mission valid and fruitful was the authority of the Son of God. In fact, the authority and personality of Jesus dominates the whole gospel. These men were were gathered from all their different circumstances, from their families, from their homes, from their vocations, by the authoritative word of Jesus when he drew near to them. And he commandeered their lives with these words, follow me. And these men stayed with Jesus. They stuck with Jesus. Why? Because he desired that they would be with him. And these men went out on mission because Jesus sent them. And these men bore fruit on mission. Why? Why? Because he gave them authority. And so when we see the fruit of these men and we see all the holes in their armor, we can trace the goodness of their ministry back to Jesus himself. And if we do an honest character assessment of ourselves this morning, we will find many similarities with the 12. If we poke around long enough in our own armor, if we look at ourselves, we will soon expose all of our own holes. We're not that much different from the disciples. And Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 still ring true today. He says, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But we have this rock-solid encouragement. The same Jesus who commissioned and empowered the twelve is the same Jesus who commissions and empowers the church Today. And so we can ask, why can we be sure that the church will flourish and grow? Why can we be sure that the gates of Hades will not prevail? Why can we be sure that the gospel will reach the ends of the earth? Why can we be sure that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? And our rock-solid hope for faithfulness and fruitfulness in this mission that Jesus commissions us to is the one who speaks in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus comes to us and speaks a greater word to us. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, or lo, I am with you always to the end of the age brothers and sisters, we go, we make disciples, we train, we teach, because Jesus has all authority. And if we desire to be faithful and fruitful in this work, if we desire to be faithful and fruitful in the joyous work of, of spreading this glorious gospel, this gospel that declares sin-forgiving power and the exaltation of Jesus, we must be a people dedicated to learning the authority of Christ. And our joyous task as the people of God is to probe the depths. To be a people who probe the depths of Jesus' great words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We must be a people who investigate what it means, all. And authority in heaven and on earth. Brothers and sisters, we can have joy and confidence this morning not because of who we are in ourselves, not because of our birth, not because of our wisdom or our skill, but because of Christ Jesus. The success of our mission, the success of all of our personal ministries lies in the authority of the sender. And though there are so many holes in our own armor, and though we stumble and fall all the time, and though our faith waxes, like the disciples, and wanes like the disciples, we stand and minister in the authority of the Spirit-filled, beloved Son of God. And Mark draws near to us as he's unveiling this story to us. And he says, behold Jesus, the one who has authority over heaven and earth, the one who owns all things. He calls us, lift up your eyes and behold this Jesus. And when you see this Jesus, and you probe the depths of this Jesus' authority, you then can have a fruitful and faithful ministry. But Jesus does not send off the 12 into Israel cart blanche, as if these men could do anything they wanted to. As we keep working through the text, the sobering reality is that with Jesus' authority resting upon these men, they were in a very real way representing Jesus himself to the nation. Therefore, these men, these twelve men, needed to speak and act and minister in a way that reflected and conformed to the one who sent them on mission. Or in other words, we could say this, these men had need to learn Jesus' ministry methods so that they could share in the the joyous work of spreading the world-altering, sin-forgiving, Jesus-exalting good news of the kingdom. They need to learn Jesus' methodology for ministry. And Jesus unveils his methodology for ministry in verses 7 through 13. And he gives the 12 very specific instructions from who they are to travel with. They are to go about two by two to what they should bring with. We charge them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics, to where they should stay. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, to even how they should leave a home or leave a town. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so as we look into these instructions in verses seven through thirteen, we can say that these instructions are not ad hoc, nor are they peripheral to this mission. Rather, these instructions are are the very method, reveal and mirror the very method of Jesus' ministry, and they do it in three ways. As we look into these instructions, we actually begin to learn the mind of Christ. And as we see that these men follow these instructions as they go out in mission in Israel, they're actually being conformed and reconfigured and reshaped into the image of Christ Jesus. And so the first way that these instructions mirror the very methodology of Jesus is revealed in urgency. These disciples are not to be encumbered by many possessions as they go on in mission. No suitcase No carry-on, not even an extra set of clothes. Rather, Jesus calls these men to take less than the bare essentials. These details reveal the haste at which they go about their mission. And this matches the ministry of Jesus. Just think. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we rarely find Jesus lingering. He moves from town to town, busy doing his father's work. He moves with haste. And we're reminded of Jesus' words earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says to his disciples who wanted him to stay in a certain town, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And Mark is teaching, the world-altering, sin-forgiving, Jesus-exalting message of the Gospel must be spread with haste. In the second way these commands mirror The ministry of Jesus is the issue of dependency. The very supplies that the disciples are allowed to take on this mission cannot in any way support their lives. They do not have adequate food, nor do they have the money to purchase food for themselves. They don't have another set of of clothes to clothe themselves, nor do they have the luxury of any predetermined shelter. Jesus doesn't give them a hotel itinerary where he's booked rooms for them as they travel about the land of Israel. Rather, they go on mission radically dependent. And again, this mirrors the very ministry of Jesus. How did Jesus appear in this world? Well, he came humbly. He even came in poverty. He did not have great possessions or riches. And Jesus speaks of his own ministry. He says, foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And the third way these instructions mirror the methods of Jesus is the issue of finality. These men were authorized by Jesus As they go two by two throughout the land, they're actually executing the ministry of Jesus as if Jesus were himself there. So to neglect or to refuse the ministry of the 12 was to reject and refuse the ministry of Jesus. And to reject and refuse the ministry of Jesus is to reject and refuse the kingdom of God itself. And we can flip this around. The 12 are actually ministering on behalf of Jesus And so to believe and receive the message of the 12 is to believe and receive Jesus himself. And to believe and receive Jesus himself well is to receive the kingdom of God. And so as Jesus' words both judge and save, and we see this throughout the Gospel of Mark, these 12 men as they preach throughout the land of Israel are actually preaching a message that judges and saves because they are sent by Jesus himself. So the question is, when we look at these, these directions for ministry, what do these directions have to do with us? And we have to understand that this text was given to a certain people at a certain time and in a certain context. We are not the twelve apostles. We don't live in ancient Israel. And so while Jesus' specific instructions for Mark 6 are not binding for us, Jesus doesn't meddle with our sandals or our tunics, nor does he mind that we provide for our families. We can say this, though. The principles guiding the disciples' mission still applies. And they apply because they reflect the very character and mind of our Savior. And so we stand in need, as the apostles did. We need to learn the methods of ministry from Christ Jesus himself. And so we can take these three aspects of ministry and push them into our own souls. If we are to learn Christ Jesus, we must also learn his urgency. We are to live like the twelve, to live with simplicity. We are to live like Jesus, to live with simplicity so that we might move with haste and speed. Our lives are not to be given up to the maintenance of riches or homes or yards. We are to be a people led on by the Apostle Paul's words. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Our lives are to be given up in haste to spreading this great message of the glorious gospel. If we are to learn Christ, we must learn his dependency. As we go on mission, as Jesus sends us out, we are not to be a people who fret about the money in our belts or the lack thereof. We're not to be a people worried about where we're going to stay or sleep or eat. But we go on mission driven by the great promise. And this is the promise we rely on day in and day out. God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Or Jesus' precious words from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be anxious. And if we are to learn Christ, we must learn his finality. Just as Jesus spoke a saving and judging word, just as the 12 spoke a saving and judging word as they administered the gospel among Israel, so too we speak a saving and judging word. The word of the gospel that we proclaim in our homes to our our children. The word of the gospel that we proclaim at work to our our workmates. The word of the gospel that we proclaim to our, our neighbors yet has the power to save and also to judge. So, if we learn Jesus, we will learn the finality of the gospel and the great power in the message that we speak. The Apostle Paul's words from the book of Romans guide us. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The disciples go out under the authority of Jesus and they go out in the ministry methods of Jesus and they bear fruit. So we've heard the success of the apostles. We circle back to verse 12 again. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so in all accounts, this missionary movement of the 12 goes off as a success. And after a similar mission in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' followers come back with great joy. And Luke records this account. They return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subjected to us in your name. So clearly we get what's going on with the disciples. They went out in the authority of Jesus, taking part in his ministry methods, and they saw success. They saw fruit. We get this. There's great joy when we see fruit in ministry, people coming to know the Lord, baptisms, brothers and sisters growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we cannot neglect the middle of Mark's sandwich this morning. And so we must chew on the story of John. And as soon as we hear the good report of the disciples' ministry after they went out into all of Israel, Mark rudely interrupts this victory chant with the sobering and grisly story of John the baptizer. Look at verses 27 and 28. Mark tells us what happens to John. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So what is Mark doing here? Mark has done this for good reason. He's like a wise and skilled card player. Mark has reserved the story of John for this appropriate time. And now after hearing the victory of the 12, their their fruit, their success, Mark lays this card before us. And he does so that we might understand what lays in store for those who go on mission to spread the life-altering, sin-forgiving, Jesus-exalting good news of the kingdom. Our vision of success must be tempered with the reality of suffering. In fact, Mark places this story before us to reorient our vision of success itself. He's teaching a successful ministry, a fruitful ministry, is in reality a ministry full of suffering. And so when we look at John's life, we can say, in always, John was a faithful minister of the kingdom. He faithfully exemplified the ministry methods of the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached with great urgency and fervency and even bravery. John didn't encumber his life with extra possessions. He traveled about in in a garment of camel's hair with only a leather belt around his waist. John lived a life radically dependent, finding his food from the land, eating what? Locusts and honey. And John preached a message filled with finality and authority. He got it. He understood what he was doing. He preaches. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John's life was marked with holiness and righteousness. But what did John receive for his faithful ministry? What was the outcome of his diligence what was the outcome of, of his urgency and his, fervor, his his fervency, his bravery, his poverty, all of his sacrifices? Notice what John doesn't receive. He didn't receive comfort and security. Rather, he preached the message bravely, and he ended up in prison. His preaching didn't garner him a lucrative book contract. Rather, he earned the hatred and the animosity of rulers. He spoke the, the right word to the wrong person. On account of his faithfulness, he did not receive a long life. Rather, his head is delivered up on a platter at a drunken party. And the truth is that the history of redemption is scattered with dead and mangled bodies of God's people. And John is not an outlier in this great story that the scriptures tell. What can we expect if we share in Jesus' mission of heralding the world-altering, sin-forgiving, Jesus-exalting good news of the kingdom, We should expect the very treatment that John received. And we can move from John's story to Jesus' story. Jesus lived a life of faithfulness. Jesus taught and preached with integrity. He moved with urgency about Israel. He acted in dependency upon his father at all points. What does Jesus receive in the end? Well, we led to a Roman cross where he dies. And this is where the Gospel of Mark presses in upon our souls. We must learn Christ. Even more, we must learn Christ crucified. When Christ calls us and sends us on mission, he calls us to die. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And when we think about serving the Lord in faithfulness, when we think about going on this mission in fruitfulness, we should think of a cross. Our expectations of serving the Lord must be conformed to this story of John. Even more importantly, to the story of Jesus. Our visions of success, our dreams of prosperity must be conformed to the crucified Christ. The one who says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But we cannot be mistaken about Jesus' call this morning to die. This is not a call of defeat. It is not a call of gloom or doom. Rather, the cross is God's chosen instrument of victory. We just look at the life of Jesus. Jesus suffered and he died. And in his death, he gained a victory over sin and death and hell. And the same reality stands before us as we take up The call of Jesus to take up our crosses and follow after him. As we take up this mission to spread this great message of the forgiveness of sins, of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We too in our suffering and even in our death will find victory. For this is how the message of the gospel is to be preached and lived and spread. This is the mark of faithfulness and fruitfulness, the mark of the cross. And so the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy draws near to us once again this morning. And as he spoke to James and John and the other disciples, follow me, he yet again draws near to us this morning and he says, follow me. When Jesus says this to us, he desires that our, our lives would be conformed to his, that we would learn to love like him, that we would learn to speak like him, that we would learn to pray like him, that we would learn to hope like him, that his mind and his will would be imprinted upon our souls, that we would be placed into the mold that is Christ Jesus and then reshaped and reconfigured into his glorious and perfect image. So let's as Jesus' people Jesus' blood-bought people, devote ourselves afresh to learning this Jesus we meet in the gospel of Mark. Let us devote ourselves to learning Jesus' authority. What does it mean for Jesus to say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let us devote ourselves to Jesus' methods. Let us move as Jesus' people with haste and urgency, independence. And let us learn above all the cross of Christ. Let us take up Jesus' great call. May we be marked by Jesus' cross. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your good word this morning. We need it. And we pray that your word would do its glorious work in our lives. We pray that you would reshape and yeah, that now you would reconfigure us. That you would reshape us into that mold of Christ Jesus. That day by day, week by week, as your word does its work in our lives, in our hearts, we would look more like your son. Oh, Father, would you give us faithfulness and would you give us fruitfulness as we go out on mission Now, we pray in your son's name, amen.